If you have a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book, the book of Acts. And the title for our sermon this morning is, The Hunter Becomes the Hunted. The Hunter Becomes the Hunted. We're in Acts 9, starting in verse 20, and we'll read down through verse 31. Here's what Luke writes. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 19. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket." And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord." And he spoke and and disputed against the Hellenists, but they also were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied." Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to read this portion of Acts 9 as we continue our study about the conversion of Saul, how you used him in a mighty way to preach the gospel there in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. I pray, God, that we would be inspired by his testimony, that we would be fired up this morning to do the same in our place of influence, that we would be unashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Be glorified in our time together in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The most dangerous game is a famous short story written in 1924. It follows the events of two hunters competing in a unique and life-threatening game of hunt. The story includes intrigue, desperation, and a fatal game of chase. The story's main character is an expert hunter from New York City named Sanger Rainsford. Rainsford had no problem with hunting and killing animals of any kind and of any breed. He brags about his successes and seems to have no sympathy whatsoever for the animals that he kills for sport. Rainsford finds himself stranded on a desert island after falling from a yacht that was taking him to Rio, Brazil. On the island... He encounters General Zeroff and his gigantic servant, Ivan, who embark on a vicious and oddly structured quest to hunt down and shoot Rainsford in the island's heavily wooded wilderness. 
General Zeroff explains that he grows bored of hunting animals because they are too predictable. Zeroff claims that a human man is different from an animal because he acts on strategy rather than on instinct. And as the hunt began, Zeroff explains the rules. Number one, Zeroff has three days to catch the huntee. Number two, if the huntee evades Zeroff successfully, he is boated to safety. Number three, Zeroff has a pistol and large hound dogs to hunt with. And number four, the huntee only has a hunting knife and a satchel of food. Through the course of the hunt, Rainsford shows himself to be a formidable foe for General Zeroff. After a little bit of a slow start and getting stuck in a tree on the first night, Rainsford narrowly escapes and the game continues. Rainsford begins to go on the offensive by building traps. And one of these traps includes the use of his hunting knife and a tree branch, which kills Zeroff's servant, Ivan. Rainsford eventually, you'll have to get the book to find out how it is. I'm so sorry about that, guys. But you'll have to get the short story and read it for your own. The point I'm trying to make is, in this story, this world-renowned hunter, Sanger Rainsford, gets a taste of what it's like to be hunted. He is used to being the hunter, setting the traps and laying out the bait and bagging his prey. But now he is on the run, trying to escape pervading danger and seeking to spare his own life. And in our text today, we're going to see how Saul, the hunter, becomes the hunted. While on the road to Damascus to persecute and bring great harm to the Christian, Saul sees a bright light. And falling to the ground, he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At this point, Saul is blind and he cannot see. He is led into the city where he waits for three days without eating or drinking until Ananias arrives. And Ananias tells Saul how he saw a vision and that in that vision, Jesus told him to go to Saul so that he might regain his sight. Ananias is instructed to also tell Saul that he will be a chosen instrument in the hand of the Lord, but that he would also suffer greatly for the sake of Christ's name. And in our text today, we're going to see how Saul, the hunter, becomes the hunted. He had to escape to spare his own life, not once, but twice. Saul, the fierce persecutor of the church, became the prey. As this passage unfolds this morning, we'll see number one in your outline, the preaching and persecution of Saul in Damascus, and then number two, the preaching and persecution of Saul in Jerusalem. Two main headings this morning. Let's start with number one, the preaching and persecution of Saul in Damascus. You'll see that in verses 20 through 25 in your first blank. If you are taking notes this morning, says proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Again, we'll start in verse 19 to get a running start here. In taking food, he was strengthened. That's Saul. Again, after the three days of not eating or drinking, he now has his sight. He's able to, uh, to see again. He takes food. He's strengthened for some days. The middle of verse 19, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And then verse 20, 
And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. Well, verse 19 tells us that after Saul regained his sight, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized and he took some food and was strengthened. And when it says for some days, he was there with the disciples at Damascus. It seems more or less that Saul has been accepted into the Christian community in Damascus. Ananias, if you remember, had hesitated slightly, but after the Lord assured Ananias that Saul indeed was a chosen instrument who would preach the gospel to Gentiles and before kings and to the children of Israel, Ananias welcomed Saul into the Christian community. And when Saul got accepted into the Christian community of Damascus, he couldn't sit on the sidelines for long. He was ready to get back into the game. Granted, he had changed sides and he had changed uniforms and he approached his purpose with a new heart and with a new focus. And instead of persecuting those who walked in the way, Saul is ready to proclaim that Jesus indeed is the son of God. The word proclaimed here in verse 10 and verse 20 is the word caruso. If you study anything about preaching, you know this is an important key word to preaching. It means to make a public declaration. It means to announce. It means to be a herald of the truth. It means to, to not be a shy and not be afraid, but to say what needs to be said because you're standing on the word of God. And that's exactly how Saul was. Saul was not shy. He was not afraid. In fact, up to this point, Saul thought that Jesus was a phony and a fake, so he spoke outwardly against Christ. He thought Jesus was actually leading the Jews away from the God of the Old Testament and therefore did everything he could within his power to stomp out the Christian faith. But after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he realized that Jesus was the Christ and that Jesus was alive and that Jesus indeed was the Lord of all. Saul had been wrong and now Saul wanted everyone to know that Jesus was right. The fact that Saul preached that Jesus is the son of God is significant. That's kind of his first message and what a powerful message it is that Jesus is the son of God. Interestingly, this is the only time in the entire book of Acts that that phrase son of God appears. And so we want to take a moment and examine it since it's the only time that phrase appears in Acts. It is it's tempting to think when we think about the Son of God, there's two titles that we can't help but compare and contrast just a little bit, Son of God and the other title, the Son of Man. And when you think about those two titles, particularly the Son of Man, uh, you often re would think that it refers mainly uh, to Christ's uh, humanity, Son of Man, and you kind of think that the Son of God title might refer to Christ's divinity. And I just want to let you know this morning, that's actually not the case. It's not like the Son of Man is only talking about Jesus as a human being, and the Son of God is only talking about Jesus as a divine being. Those two terms are used somewhat interchangeably. I mean, the Son of Man does emphasize to a degree his humanity, but the main idea of the Son of Man actually comes from an Old Testament passage in Daniel chapter 7. And in that passage, the Son of Man is in reference to a heavenly being who dwelt in the presence of the Ancient of Days from eternity past and who would be sent from heaven to earth and descend for a special mission. 
That title, Son of Man, describes more of Jesus' divine nature than it does of his human nature. Jesus actually referred to himself more as the Son of Man than he did as the Son of God. Now, when you look at the title that Paul's stressing here, Son of God title, used by Saul in Damascus, what does he mean to emphasize? In the Old Testament, this title, the Son of God, could be used in a few different ways. Let's just briefly look at a couple of them. Number one, that same phrase, Son of God, could refer to angels in heaven, could refer to angels in heaven. Your next blank there, the angels of heaven sometimes are referred to as sons of God. Think of it as more of a lowercase s, sons of God. In that sense, they are creatures of God, not divine beings. The best known reference for uh, the sons of God referring to angels might be Genesis chapter one, verses, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter six, verses one through two. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born him, the sons of God saw that their daughters of man were attractive and they took them as wives as they chose. Again, we see the phrase referring to angels in Job chapter 1, verse 6. You'll remember this passage as well. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So the phrase sons of God could refer to angels, in this case, fallen angels. A second way that phrase is used in the Bible would be as Israel. Sons of God or son of God could be referred to as Israel as a nation, Israel is called the Son of God. And in God's redeeming of his people, Israel, he adopted them into his family and called the whole corporate nation his son. We read so much as in Deuteronomy 14.1, says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Passage there in Deuteronomy 14. Again, we see Son of God referring to Israel as a nation in Psalm 82, verse 6. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. A third way Son of God can be used as a title in the Old Testament would be to refer to kings. Kings in the Old Testament. Kings in the Old Testament are sometimes referred to as the sons of God. First Chronicles 28, verse 6, And he said to me, It is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Now, none of those references, whether we're referring to angels or we're referring to kings or we're referring to Israel as a nation, None of those are what Saul is talking about here in this passage. None of those have a divine emphasis. They all seem to be seen as created beings. They're all inferior titles, if you will, to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Son of God. And so that's why the fourth usage and the main usage we see there is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God. Now, the concept of Messiah, the anointed one, continued to grow with further and further revelation as the Old Testament um, was written. And over time, the word Messiah became synonymous with the term Son of God. And in the New Testament, God spoke audibly from the clouds and announced to those uh, that Jesus uh, was indeed his son. He did that at Christ's baptism you're familiar again with Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased. And so at Christ's baptism, God the Father makes it abundantly clear that Christ is indeed his son. We read it again in the Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verse five. God makes the same announcement from a cloud in heaven. Matthew 17, five, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, what I want to stress here is that Jesus is not God's son in the sense of a human father and son. God did not get married and have a son. That's what the Mormons actually teach. That's not true. God did not produce a son from within himself. Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God made manifest in human form. Jesus is God's son in the sense that he was miraculously conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke 1.35 says, and the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, during Christ's trial before the Jewish leaders, the high priest demanded Jesus to answer this question in Matthew 26, 63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus responded in the next verse by saying, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So again, Pilate asked him, are you the son of God? Jesus' answer is, you have said so. And then he equates that son of God title with the son of man because he says, from now on, you will see the son of man. And so by answering this way, Jesus shows us that he indeed is the son of God and that he is the son of man. And that both of these titles are simply saying that Jesus is God. He is of the same nature as God. He is of the same essence as God. He is of the same power as God. He is of the same attributes as God. The, the same in omniscience, the same in omnipotence, the same in omnibenevolence. Jesus is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-loving. He's all-wise. He's almighty. And this is what Saul is preaching in Acts chapter 9. It's a theological message saying that we've got to look to Christ. If you really want to understand God, the God of the Old Testament, you have to see him being fulfilled in all the prophecies that point to the Messiah, who is Jesus, who is indeed the Son of God. Paul, Saul here, that becomes Paul, here in Acts 9, he wasn't preaching that Jesus was a finite being, like all the other titles of the Son of God, but he is teaching that this Jesus is an infinite being. He wasn't preaching that Jesus had a finite origin, but he had an infinite origin. He wasn't teaching that Jesus was still dead or still buried, but that he was alive and that he would be alive for all eternity. I mean, notice there in verse 20 again, he didn't say Jesus was the son of God. He said Jesus is the son of God, that he's still alive, that he's been resurrected, that he still lives today. And I love the, the worship song, Waymaker, 
Saul is saying in the, in the same sense here, he's saying Jesus is. That song says Jesus is moving in our midst, that Jesus is working in this place. He is saying that Jesus is the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. In a sense, that's what Saul's preaching before Waymaker came out, right? He's just saying, this is who Christ is. And as the son of God, Jesus is the light of the world. Saul is more sure of this than ever. Saul had now seen Jesus face to face. He had heard from Jesus on the road to Damascus and no doubt he had now read and been able to understand as his mind was opened up by the illumination of the Holy Spirit and understand all the passages that he had ever studied about a Messiah coming is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is Saul's message. Saul is not preaching the old covenant. Saul is not preaching four tips to a happy life. Saul is not preaching about how to fight the Romans. Saul is preaching Christ. He was preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. He was preaching that Jesus is divine. And understanding this truth can change a person's life. And we live in a day and a time where people water down preaching, they water down theology, They water down Jesus as being more of a touchy-feely sort of person rather than the son of God. And Paul made it his quest as he began to make sure that every Jew knew that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, that he is indeed Christ. And he preached that for the rest of his life. Paul preached Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul preached Christ in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My friends, we must be willing and ready and ever so excited to do the same. That's our mission, to preach Jesus as the Son of God. We're to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, 2 Timothy 4.2. That's our objective, is to follow in the footsteps of Saul. Wasn't it Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ? He's preaching about the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see how Saul was proclaiming Jesus as the son of God. Now let's look at verse 21 and we'll see how the others there were recognizing, your next blank, they were recognizing this transformation. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So again, the audience of the people there in Damascus were hearing Saul preach about the very name of the person that he came to persecute. He was persecuting Christ and he was persecuting Christ's body. So the listeners are just taking a little bit of a step back. They're amazed. They're astonished. They were astounded. They were startled, stunned, and surprised. I mean, wasn't this the same man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? Again, look back at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging 
the church and entering house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Look at the beginning of chapter nine, verses one and two. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then look at verse 13 and 14 here in Acts 9, verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But you know what? Things have changed. The hunter is now becoming hunted. And he's becoming hunted, as we'll see here as the passage in place, because his life has been radically transformed. I wonder if you've ever seen anybody whose life was so radically transformed when they came to Christ that you could barely recognize them. I had a friend in high school who was a little timid and a little shy. He's a buddy of mine. We play ball together. And I saw Christ change this man, this young, this young man. I saw Christ save him. I saw him grow through college as a witness for the Lord Jesus. He's a preacher today in Tennessee who's unashamed to preach the gospel boldly. I remember when I was working as a PA, there was a young man who was in the operating room. He worked as a nurse anesthetist, and he would make fun of me because of my faith and uh, try to uh, mock me in there, and then this guy got saved. Right in the middle of my time working in Savannah, I had an opportunity to witness to him a few times. A few others were witnessing to him, and this guy got saved. And after he got saved, he used to come into the operating room. Whatever room I was in operating, he would come and make a beeline for me with his Bible and say, hey, Adam, what about this passage? What about this passage? You know, because he was just this young convert. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that's like one of the most exciting things about being a Christian is seeing God get a hold of someone's life to where they're so radically transformed. You're like, well, wait a second. Is this the same person? There was a girl who gave her testimony here just last baptism who said before I was saved, uh, you know, I was living for myself and in my sin, I got saved. And some people around church tell me I look like a different person because my countenance is now radiating with the joy that I have of knowing Christ. And I just love those transformational stories of people who were in darkness. Did you know that's all of our story? That every single one of us were lost, totally depraved, on our way to hell, and God changed you? And sometimes we look at a testimony like Saul's and we're like, man, that's just awesome. He like fell to the ground, it's this bright light. He's like blind for three days, so dramatic, you know? And it is dramatic and we can look at it and appreciate it but your testimony is no less dramatic. You've been radically saved. If you're in Christ today, you were on your way to hell, even if you were in homeschool. <laughs> homeschool can't save you, right? We love our homeschool families, all right? But I'm just saying, like all of us, we're on our way to hell. It's only through Christ. It's only by acknowledging that he indeed is the son of God. It's only by turning from your sin. And when that happens, you become a radically different person. Think about Matthew, who was a tax collector, radically saved. Think about Peter, who was a fisherman. He was radically saved. Just think back on your own life again, that, that, that people hopefully would see you and see a difference in your own life. And if not, maybe you should ask the question, have I been radically saved? 
I mean, the Bible says, Paul, actually, 2 Corinthians, through, through the Holy Spirit, says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's your testimony if you're in Christ this morning. I, I became a Christian because I saw my sin and God revealed himself to me through his word. And I realized that I was on my way to hell and it was only by repenting and trusting in Christ that I could be born again. I became a pastor because I became addicted to grace. And I'm like, not only has that happened in my life, I want to see it happen again and again and again and again because there's no greater high than seeing people come to Christ. And the second greatest high is see people start to walk with Christ as they are baby Christians and they become maturing Christians and they begin to overcome besetting sin and they begin to taste and see that the Lord is so good and that not only am I in Christ, but I'm full of the Holy Spirit and I'm able to walk in the joy of the Lord, which is my strength and nothing else in this world matters. And this is what's happened to Saul. He can't help but just preach it in a, such a crazy way, such a transformational way that the others are watching and they're amazed at this transformation. They are completely blown away recognizing that Saul has been completely transformed. You know what else is going on? Verse 22, our next blank says, he's confounding the Jews. What a great word there, right? He's confounding the Jews, verse 22, where we read, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So when the verse says Saul increased all the more in strength, it's almost assuredly referring to his inner strength, his spiritual strength, not, not his physical strength. The word confounded here in verse 22 means that Saul stirred them up. The word means to amaze. It means to perplex. It means to bewilder. He got their attention. He riveted them to the core. It's the same word used back in Acts chapter 2, Verse six, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The same word is again, used again in Acts 21, 27, when Paul was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem. And it says, Acts 21, 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And so we know that Saul certainly used his theological training. He's stirring up, bewildering, confounding the Jews here in verse 22. Obviously, he was using, again, his theological training to good, to good advantage. Saul was pressing home the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, same truth. Like Stephen, who went before him, Saul met the Jews in open debate about the deity and the majesty of Jesus. And saving faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, Romans 1.17 says. And so this is all Saul was about. And speaking of, of Paul, it also says, Acts 18.28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And I love that. Showing by the scriptures, that was Saul's text. It was taking the Old Testament, showing from the Bible, we don't have to come up with incredible proofs of the existence of the Lordship of Christ from creation, 
from science, from psychologists, from any other discipline, why all of those studies at times can be helpful and, and they're certainly interesting to think about and to look at, but we prove or God proves himself through the word. Obviously, you have general revelation where he just is and we see him through creation, but it's through the special revelation of the word of God. Remember, Saul had had the finest education that a Jew could have. He was of a premier intellect and training. And once Jesus revealed to Saul that he was indeed the son of God and the Messiah, then Saul was able to use his vast knowledge of the Old Testament and prove that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. I mean, Jesus was like revealing himself to him in such a way that it just all came together. It was like it just all clicked and he was able to finally use all of his training, all of his expertise through the key that unlocked that knowledge, which was coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see here in verses 23 through 25 that there was an escaping. So after he confounded the Jews there, they got so upset, they're going to come after him. So there's an escaping in a basket, verses 23 through 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him into a basket. Now, I want to take just a quick moment and say here in verse 23, when it says, when many days had passed, pretty much all of the commentaries suggest here that this was probably a fairly lengthy period of time. In fact, most commentaries would say this is where we would insert Paul's um, trip to Arabia. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians, and you'll see it. Galatians 1, 17 and 18. Again, many days have passed. So somewhere between verses 22 and 23, it's an important part of Saul's development as a new Christian. This most likely, again, marks a significant amount of time, which, which points to Galatians 1, 17 through 18, which says Saul, now Paul, giving a little bit more of his testimony, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, so he's saying after he was saved in Damascus, he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. Before he went to Jerusalem, he says, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So we know there's a period of three years between his conversion. A part of that time was in Damascus. Part of that time was in Arabia. And then part of that time was in Damascus again. And so by this account, three years actually passed between verse 22 and verse 23. And it's implied that Saul spent probably a good portion of those years learning from the Lord in Arabia. Now, the area of Arabia is not the same modern day territory of Arabia, but it was located by Damascus to the south. It was a rural area. This was a place where Saul could go and think. This was a place where Saul had ample time to go and study. This was a time for Saul to meditate on the word of God, to ruminate on the word of God. This was a time for Saul to spend time in prayer. This was a time for Saul to get away with God. Later, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I mean, I don't know how else to tell you this, but it takes time. It takes time to become an accurate 
exegetical scholar, an an accurate theologian, someone who could take all of the scripture. It wasn't like Saul got saved and immediately he was able to declare the fullness of God's word. Now, granted, he had a lot more already in his well than maybe the average person, but I believe here there's a, a, a principle of taking time to grow in your knowledge. It takes time to grow in your character. It takes time for you to grow in your ministry so that you can be even more effective for God. Plus, don't forget that the qualifications of an elder is that you would not be a recent convert, which is why 1 Timothy 3.6 says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So Saul took some time. He took his time. He was in Arabia. He came back to Damascus. It was about three years. And then when he returned to Damascus, he was then more on fire than ever. So much so that the Jews in Damascus made a plot to kill Saul. And Saul had been responsible for persecuting Christians. And now those Jews in Damascus wanted to kill Saul. And their, their plot became known to Saul's disciples who helped him escape in a basket through an opening in the city wall at night. So apparently not only had they accepted Saul into their community, there were followers of Saul, disciples of Saul, ultimately disciples of Christ, but he had built up people in the ministry there who followed him, who ministered together with him, who had his back and who were ready to help him escape in the right way and at the right time to make sure that he got to safety. What a strange turn of events. Saul entered Damascus blind and he left Damascus in a basket so that he could continue his mission. And so verses 20 through 25, we've seen how Saul was preaching and being persecuted in Damascus. And let's now look at verses 26 through 31, how Saul was doing the same thing, preaching and teaching and then being persecuted in Jerusalem. Your next blank there says the challenge of being accepted. The challenge of being accepted Look at verse 26, where we read, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, just as Ananias was initially reluctant to go to Saul in Damascus, the disciples were reluctant to have him join their group in Jerusalem. And based on Saul's previous behavior of wreaking havoc, ravaging the church, and breathing threats of murder against the disciples, it is understandable of why the disciples feared Saul. They did not believe that he was truly converted. He was possibly a wolf in sheep's clothing. So they had to be discerning about what was going on. I mean, what would you do if the arch enemy of America said all of a sudden that he was a Christian? Or the arch enemy of your life said that they were born again, you would just want to take a second and take that in for a little bit. I mean, questions came up. Where had Saul been for the last three years? What was he doing? What what exactly were his true beliefs? What was his goal in coming into such close fellowship with the disciples? How long had the disciples rejected Saul? We don't know, but based on the verb tense, it appears that there have been repeated attempts and repeated rejections. The word attempted means that he kept trying. Many unanswered questions, again, helped create an atmosphere of suspicion and fear. In verse 27, we see that the friend that reached out, the friend that reached out to him was no other than Barnabas. Verse 27, but 
Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. It was Barnabas who helped the Jerusalem church accept Saul. Now again, we met Barnabas also called Joseph, the son of encouragement, back in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through 37. And just as Ananias had befriended Saul in Damascus and brought him into the believing community, it was Barnabas who in Jerusalem invited Saul in. Barnabas took hold of Saul and brought him to the church leaders. And he convinced them that Saul was both a believer as well as a chosen apostle, a chosen apostle. Barnabas made it clear that Saul had indeed seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. There is no mention of Barnabas seeing a vision like Ananias did in Damascus of telling Jesus, Jesus telling Barnabas what to do. This was just the nature of the man. He was a true friend and an encouragement to others. And most likely the way that Barnabas got this information is he was willing to give Saul a chance and he spent time with him. And they went to whole new coffee and they hung out. I'm just kidding. You know, they went and spent time. Barnabas all of a sudden has all this information about what happened on the road and how he preached in Damascus. So he must have spent some time. He cared enough to really hear the heart of Saul and to hear his testimony and to evaluate for himself if there indeed had been a true change. And I just wonder sometimes if we could learn from that. Instead of being skeptical about a person or something you heard about somebody, everybody's cautious and suspicious, why don't you just say, hey, I'd love to go grab coffee with you. I'd love to just kind of get to hear a little bit of your story. I'd love to hear what it is that God's doing in your life or what really happened in that circumstance. I love that about Barnabas. He's just an encourager, just wants to spend time. And of course, Saul's testimony proved to be true. And so Barnabas, now being very familiar with Saul and his encounter, came back and worked him into that relationship there with the other disciples in Jerusalem. I think, what, again, what Barnabas is demonstrating here is true friendship. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27, 10, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And I hope that you and I would be that kind of friend. I hope that we would be willing to reach out, to get to know someone, to bring them into our fellowship. There needs to be wisdom and there needs to be discernment, but there also needs to be a welcoming spirit to any and every brand new Christian as they come to the faith. May we not look down our noses and say just because they're not theologically astute and still not understanding all that the Bible teaches that we wouldn't welcome them into this fellowship and into our home so that we could vouch for their testimony. That's what Barnabas did with Saul. And then we see in verses 28 through 29, the preaching that got Saul in trouble. The preaching that got him in trouble, 28 and 29. But he went in and out among them. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Well, Saul was finally accepted. He went in and out freely in Jerusalem. He moved about without hesitation and without limits. And he wanted to preach the gospel to anyone and to everyone. 
And so he was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. That phrase, preaching boldly, is just one word in the original language. It means to express oneself freely. It means to be open and fearless. It means to have courage in the face of danger or opposition. And Saul may have known that his freedom wouldn't last forever. And so he took every opportunity that he had and he preached his heart out for the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached boldly in the name of the Lord. We must be willing to do the same today. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 7, he said, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity has laid it upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, Paul said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied its power for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, listen, we're living in a world that is changing. We are living in a world where preaching the gospel is no longer socially accepted. What is accepted in our culture is a bunch of strong opinions about a lot of cultural issues. And people are welcome to go on rants, to riot in the streets, and to resist authority. And people are welcome to express themselves and to elevate themselves and to exalt themselves. And people are welcome to post on Pinterest to insert themselves on Instagram and to tweet on Twitter. But the one thing that the world cannot stand is a preacher who preaches the gospel without hesitation and without watering down the message and without apology. And oh, how we need Christians today to stand for Christ. We need Christians today to move through the maze, to navigate through all the negativity and to cut to the chase. And we need Christians who will preach Christ. We need preachers who will not flinch, who will not fold, and who will not falter. We need preachers who will call out sin, point to God's mercy, and reverberate God's love. We need preaching that changes lives. This is what we see modeled all throughout the New Testament. And in verse 29, we see how Saul spoke and he disputed directly with the Hellenists. Now remember, these were Greek proselytes. They were Greek Jews who had a Greek origin that were likely born outside of Israel, had come into Israel, we think, for the feast, and some of them have stayed, and now Saul used to be one of them. He used to be one of those Greek Hellenists who had even engineered the trial and the death of Stephen. Saul used to be one of those, and now he's trying to win his own people out of those Greek Hellenists. He's trying to win them back. Saul was one of them. He was born in Tarsus, which was a Gentile area. He most likely maybe even felt an obligation that of all the Jews there in Jerusalem, he wanted to start off with those Hellenistic Jews. He wanted to kind of carry on and, and pick up the mantle that was left by Stephen. And I love it when people have a passion to reach their own. Sometimes they have, have to be told to, 
reach their own. Do you remember that story of how Jesus cast out the demons of the Gerizine demoniac who then went into the pigs and they drowned themselves? And when the Gerizines came out, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. And the man also uh, desired to come with Christ. You remember what Jesus said to him? He said in Mark 5, 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. I love it when people take the gospel back to their own people. Saul is taking the gospel in Jerusalem back to those Hellenistic Jews. And when people take the gospel back to their own people, it's just a special burden. It's a special desire. In church history, there was John Huss who wanted to take the gospel back to his own people in Bohemia. There was an African chief who was saved through the missionary work of David Livingston who took the gospel back to his own people. I love it when God saves people and then sends them back to preach the gospel to their own. This is exactly what Shannon Hurley is doing in Uganda. This is what Michael C. Houston is doing in Fiji. This is what T.J. Smith is doing in Dubai. This is what Peter Malachar is doing in India. They're trying to raise up indigenous churches and indigenous pastors and they're training them and saying, I want you to go back to the village that you came from, to the area, to your own people and in your own tongue, in your mother tongue, preach Christ. And sometimes it may be well received and other times you might be persecuted for it. And this is the case that we see here for Saul at the end of verse 29, but they were seeking to kill him. Our job is to be faithful. Our job is to be fearless. Our job is to be filled with the gospel and to preach no matter the cost, but don't expect it to always be easy. 1 Peter 4, 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice so far as you are able to share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, we see that the challenge of, of Saul being accepted in Jerusalem, the friend that reached out, that's Barnabas, the preaching that got Saul in trouble. And then we see here, your next blank says, the escape plan to Tarsus, the escape plan to Tarsus. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so just like Saul's disciples in Damascus came up with a plan for escape, the brothers in Jerusalem had a plan as well. And they decided that it would be best to bring Saul to Caesarea, which was that seaport on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, and then off to his hometown, Tarsus. And Paul talks about this in Acts 22, 17 through 21, where we also see Jesus was involved in giving instructions about his escape. Look over at it with me. Acts 22, Jesus is the one who actually also tells him that he is to escape from Jerusalem. As again, uh, Saul talks about this. And now Paul, Acts 22, 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him, that would be Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. This is referring to this incident of Acts chapter nine when those in Jerusalem were going to kill Saul and Jesus said, get out quickly because they will not accept you. And then skip down to verse 21. And he said to me, go 
for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We will not see Saul again until Acts eleven twenty five, when it was once more Barnabas who finds Saul and brings him to the church at Antioch where they minister together. So again, remember, Saul took a hiatus in Arabia for about three years, and now he's taking a hiatus in uh, Tarsus, where he's from, for about seven years. So we're going to see a total of 10 years between his conversion and when he began his first missionary journey. And this is a time for him to escape to Tarsus according to the direction of the Lord Jesus. And while he was in Tarsus, He was far from idle. Between this time and the time when he came back to Antioch, he was aggressively doing what the Lord had called him to do. In fact, according to Galatians 1.21, he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and at least some of the churches of that region mentioned in Acts 15.23 must have been founded by Saul during those years. What I'm trying to say is Saul was not escaping to do nothing. He was told by Jesus to leave Jerusalem quickly and to go far away to the Gentiles. We need the Lord's wisdom to know when to stay and when to go. I just love the fact here that strategically, God never says all people all stay all the time. Neither does he say everybody flee all the time. There's just a point where you stay and stick it out and you might be martyred for it. Happened to Stephen. And there's a time when you're like, you know what? God's calling me to go, but wherever I go, I'm gonna do the same thing. So whether I'm here or whether I'm there, my job is to be faithful where I am for God's glory to preach Christ. And then we see in verse 31, the peace and the growth of the church. The peace and growth of the church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We just simply see that after Saul left, Things quieted down for a while in Palestine. The churches in the area were being built up. Even though things had been difficult, this was a time for spiritual growth. This was a time of spiritual rest in the Lord. This was a time for the church to regroup and to think through how they could be effective to carry out God's plan for the whole world. After certain significant moments, Luke gives pertinent summaries of the state of the church. He did this after Acts 2, 47, uh, after Pentecost. He did it in Acts 6, 7, after the church appointed the first deacons. And he does so here. After Saul's conversion in the initial part of his ministry, he just kind of gives a summary statement about what's going to be happening. This was an opportunity again for the church to repair and to strengthen their sails before the next storm began to blow. The door of faith had been opened to the Jews in Acts 2 and to the Samaritans in Acts 8. And it would soon be open to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And Saul was moved off the scene for a season and Peter now returns. Soon Peter will move off the scene and Paul will fill the pages of the rest of the book of Acts. God changes his workmen, but his work goes on. And you and I have the privilege to be a part of that same work Today, we have the opportunity to follow in the footsteps of these incredible men and women that we see throughout Scripture. And here today, we've again studied how Saul was the hunter and then he became hunted. And I just want to ask you maybe you've been the hunter. At times in your life, you've made fun of God and you've attacked followers of God and you've mocked your parents, you've mocked Godly men and women who've talked to you about Christ and you've, you've tried to shoot arrows and shoot holes 
through their reasoning and through their argumentation through scripture. You've been hunting and killing, if you will, the things of God. And maybe this morning, through God's word, the hunter is now becoming hunted. And what I'm saying to you is maybe God's hunting you down. Maybe God has released the hounds of heaven. And while you've been running, you can't hide any longer. And somehow, in your effort to run away from God and to mock the things of God, that God has spoken his truth into your life. And that nothing could be more precious than in a service like this, that you could maybe realize that we were all the hunter who had been hunted by God. And that God is hunting you this very moment. Won't you come to him this day? Won't you bow the knee to Christ that on this day you would just give up? That you would find that your rest can only be found in a risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That no matter how many arguments you have against, there is only one truth. There's only one way. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to come to him this morning, we want to invite you to do that. After we sing this final song, we'll have a few people standing by this back door. And if you want to talk about what it means to be a Christian, we would love to share with you how you can come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and there's other areas of your life and you just feel like God is continuing to hunt you down about areas that need to be addressed as well, you can come. We'd love to talk and provide counsel, prayer, encouragement to you. We want to be a Barnabas to you, to welcome you into further discussion, conversation about how you could be right with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word and just to read again this amazing story of the transformation of Saul, his bold witness for you in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. God, how we're inspired and challenged, encouraged that we would follow in a similar way. Maybe we don't have a, a public, uh, national, or citywide influence, but maybe it's just right there in our home, right there with a the couple of students in our class, right there with a couple of neighbors that live around us, with a couple of people who work with us at work. I pray that you would just help us to be faithful. God, we want to walk close to you. We thank you for hunting us down for saving us, those of us who are in Christ. And we just pray that we would go on the offensive, that we would be radically transformed, that we would, now that we belong to you, God, that we would seek others, that we'd step out of darkness into light. It's gotta be your grace. It's gotta be your sovereign power. But we wanna be those mouthpieces to see others radically transformed, to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that work in us and through us this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.